This is Sam Swartz and Rachel Fields with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Dane County Board voted against a plan last Thursday to reduce the size of the new Dane County Jail and implement a series of criminal justice reforms to help bring down the jail's population, Madison 365 reports. The plan put forward by the Dane County Black Caucus would have reduced the number of beds in the jail by about 100 with five floors, bringing the total cost of the jail below what is currently budgeted. The current plan to build a six-floor jail is currently $10 million over the budgeted amount, which itself was an increase from what was originally budgeted in 2019 due to inflation. The board also failed to approve expanding the funds to build the jail and failed to approve a referendum to put the budget expansion before voters in November. Now the county board is back to square one in trying to figure out how to pay for a new Dane County Jail. While Assembly Speaker Robin Voss won his primary election and faces no Democratic challenger, his fight is not yet over. The Wisconsin Examiner reports that Adam Steen, who lost to Voss by less than 300 votes, will be launching a write-in campaign to take on Wisconsin's top Republican. Steen, who has the backing of both former President Donald Trump and 2020 election investigator Michael Gableman, has based his campaign on overturning the results of the 2020 election, a move experts and Voss have called both impossible and illegal. Almost half of the artists at the Madison Museum of Contemporary Arts Wisconsin Triennial Exhibit have pulled their work, reports the Capital Times. The artist penned an open letter criticizing the museum last Friday, saying it failed to protect both the artists and the art in the Ain't I a Woman exhibit. Even before the exhibit got off the ground, it was mired in controversy, after Madison artist Lilata G was verbally assaulted by an Overture Center staffer. Even so, G's mural was left up, unfinished, and incorporated into the exhibit. Then, G's art was vandalized and stolen, after the museum left the exhibit unsupervised. G was reportedly asked by museum staff whether the people who vandalized and stole her work could keep it. The group penning the open letter says that museum leadership has failed to show meaningful care for the exhibit and its participants, and for perpetrating institutional harm within the museum. The group of artists is calling for a public apology from the museum, financial restitution, the resignation of the current museum director, and other demands. The Madison Metropolitan School District is still working to fill 136 teaching positions ahead of the school year, NBC15 reports. In an interview with CNN, Superintendent Carlton Jenkins said that the district had been reaching out to teachers around the world to fill some of those spots, including teachers from Mexico and Spain in the district's dual language immersion program. The first day of school for all MMSD students is next Friday. Now, on to today's top stories. If I asked you to think about reducing carbon emissions, what comes to mind? Probably something like electric vehicles or renewable energy. But as WORT producer Nate Weggehout discovered, efforts to reduce carbon emissions are even happening under our feet. 
Transportation is one of the largest contributors to U.S. carbon emissions. When we think about what causes those emissions, we might think of gas-guzzling cars on interstate highways. But the infrastructure of our entire transportation system, roads, release carbon emissions as well. Last week, Madison's Board of Public Works heard a presentation of an unusual place to cut emissions concrete. It was part of an effort from the Wisconsin Concrete Pavement Association, a paving industry group representing Wisconsin concrete producers, manufacturers, and suppliers. Now, concrete should not be confused with cement, though usually concrete does contain cement. While cement is a specific material, concrete is a mixture of everything from cement to limestone to even ash. Concrete is used in everything from buildings to bridges to sidewalks to their most common use, roads. The Wisconsin Department of Transportation paves over 400 miles of road with concrete every year. And with all of that concrete comes plenty of carbon emissions, mostly generated from the production of the concrete itself. And new low-carbon concrete is already making great strides to address those emissions, says Kevin McMullen of the Concrete Pavement Association. Um, we're looking right now at a, a, tw- a minimum 27% reduction up to about 47% reduction in carbon impact of the materials of concrete that, that we're putting together. McMullen says that low carbon concrete cuts CO2 in three big ways. First, it just uses less concrete. An average road in Wisconsin has about 9 inches of concrete. But if that design were better optimized and only 8 inches of concrete were laid, that would lead to an 11% reduction in materials and thus an 11% reduction in CO2 as well. Next, a new type of concrete that uses more limestone in the mix comes with the same strength but lower emissions. This type of concrete, called Portland limestone, is not new. It has been used in Europe for decades, and as of this year, the State Department of Transportation exclusively uses Portland limestone concrete on all road projects. Finally, we can change the materials that we use to make our concrete. Instead of using cement, which has a high carbon footprint, McMullen says that we can reuse things like ash created from coal power plants, which is usually disposed of in landfills. McMullen says that Wisconsin's plan to phase out coal power plants would not really affect this plan. As you know, there's also a lot of work being done on how do we get rid of coal-fired power plants and are these materials going to be available? So when the coal fire power plants go away, we have an alternative material in which to use. I think the majority of it is going to be um, mining of old fly ash uh, power plant dumps um, and and processing the material to get it to to specification and use in concrete. So we'd have that, again, another positive impact potentially and that we're getting rid of uh, what could have been in the past considered a toxic waste dump. uh, And we're looking at how to... How do, we, how do we utilize those old materials? But what about the structural integrity of low-carbon concrete? Will it be able to withstand Wisconsin's harsh winters? McMullen says that that isn't an issue because they stumbled on low-carbon concrete for researching durability. You know, like I said, we were so focused on quality, you know, not having the concrete be impacted by freeze-thaw, making it uh, non-reactive to, to de-icing salts strong enough to carry any load that, that could be applied to it that you know we were, we were focused on the engineering properties and it wasn't until you know a few years later when uh, we brought up the fact that 
hey, you know what? Else, what we're what we're also doing here is we're re reducing our carbon footprint. So it's a win-win for everybody. We're making better concrete. I'm totally convinced of that. We're making much better concrete than we were 10 years ago. And the the other win here is that we're reducing our carbon impact as well. While more and more people are moving towards electric vehicles to cut down on their transportation carbon emissions, know that even the road below you is working to reduce CO2 in the environment. Reporting for WORT News. Hey, why not concrete? I'm Nate Wuggiehout. A Wisconsin community group has partnered with a nonprofit climate equity firm to develop a workforce development program. It provides minorities with access to green energy jobs. Workers in this field have been predominantly white, and there are numerous reasons for the lack of diversity. Edwin Vieira with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. The Wisconsin Latino community has been inundated with job opportunities in the green economy thanks to a new pilot program. Elevate, a climate change equity nonprofit, has partnered with the Latino Academy of Workforce Development to help minority construction workers develop relationships within the climate change economy. The contractor accelerator helps electricians get certifications to install solar panels or workers to install heating and cooling systems that aren't reliant on fossil fuels. Balthazar de Anda Santana with the Latino Academy says there's been a disconnect between minority communities and the green energy economy. They were not part of that green energy conversation, not because they didn't want it to be, but because they didn't know how to get closer to that conversation. One participant, when we were talking about how to access contracts or how to get some of these certifications, the person said, you know, I, I didn't know that we could do that. Given this is a pilot program, he's hoping to bring it back in the future with some alterations. He wants to make a more permanent version available with added business training for a green energy workforce. He says the group is eyeing several grants to keep the program alive. Elevate will also evaluate whether changes need to be made, although the program has proven highly effective. Melissa Gumbar, Elevate's Director of Workforce Development, says a similar program in Chicago has seen business take off and grow as a result, and the number of diverse contractors grow too. She explains it's good to hear firsthand about the challenges from minority-owned businesses in the field. They came in to talk to the program participants about their journey, what to do or not to do, give kind of like inside tips and tools of the trade because those things aren't made explicit. It's like a hidden culture of how to break into the construction industry. Other accelerator programs have helped workers in Michigan, Missouri, and Oregon. Gumbar adds as the effects of climate change grow, jobs in the sector of the construction economy will increase at a faster rate and should lead to more lucrative opportunities. I'm Edwin J. Vieira, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. After nearly two years of intra-party wrangle, intra wrangling, the U.S. Congress finally passed a major climate change, health care, and tax reform legislation. Confusingly dubbed the Inflation Reduction Act, the 730-page bill was officially signed into law by President Joe Biden last week. To learn more about the bill, 8 o'clock Buzz, Buzz host Brian Standing spoke with U.S. Congressman Mark Pocan earlier today. So at $485 billion total spending, the Inflation Reduction Act is a pretty far cry from the $2 trillion proposed a year ago when the House sent the bill to back better bill to the Senate. 
Is there anything in the new bill that you recognize from the bill that uh, the House passed a year ago? Actually, there's a significant amount uh, of overlap. In fact, uh, uh, probably the largest part of it is, is overlap. And uh, then there are some additional parts uh, that you know, are kind of directly trying to look at some of the inflationary issues. But all along, we knew that investing in healthcare and investing in energy, uh, especially climate change, was going to save people money. So um, we were able to get a very significant amount uh, in that bill. Uh, in fact, it was quite a surprise because we thought it was dead. So uh, what what did get cut out of the uh, bill that you sent back a year ago? Yeah, the main stuff that got cut, I think, it, it was important, and we still want to get it done, was the child care provisions and the child tax credit, some of those issues. But um, very, very significant uh, things did get included, uh, which is how we usually talk about things, not what didn't get included. Uh, and that's the provisions to allow us to negotiate for prescription drug prices through Medicare, something that should have always been in place, but wasn't specifically because of a provision uh, during the Affordable Care Act where Republican Billy Towson put a provision in uh, that said we couldn't. Uh, he left a couple months later to work for Big Pharma, surprising. <laughs> uh, but uh, that and there's a $2,000 cap on seniors on out-of-pocket prescription drug expenses. There's a continuation of the subsidies for the Affordable Care Act that'll help support 13 million people who are receiving that. And then you go to the things like all the climate change provisions. And then I think the other part that's significant and, and definitely mirrors what we were doing in Build Back Better is we make sure it's paid for by those uh, who've often figured out how to gain the system and the most wealthy. And that's the minimum tax of 15% on corporations, the 1% surcharge that is new, uh, wasn't in Build Back Better, 1% surcharge on stock buyback. But, you know, making sure that uh, those who can most afford it are paying for it. Uh, that is extremely significant. Well, let's talk about some of these uh, in, in a little more detail. Um, let's talk about some of the climate change provisions. I mean, I think that's some of the things that people seem to be most excited about. Um, there's some estimates that indicate that it would uh, help reduce climate uh, emissions by 40%, something along those lines. It's It seems to be very dependent on incentives rather than regulation. Is there some uh, uh, leeway in those projections based on how willing people are to take those incentives? Well, I mean, again, you're always projecting either way, right? Right. Uh, how much you're going to do. But I, I think in this case, a lot of the tax incentives we had were part of the original, again, the Build Back Better uh, Act, because that's how we've often incentivized in this area. But, you know, don't forget, you have to add in things also like the half a million electric vehicle charging stations that were part of the infrastructure bill, right? That's why these two bills still are very much components of the Build Back Better agenda that was originally out there. But reducing emissions by 40% by 2030 puts us pretty much at the goals that were in Build Back Better. So, yeah, that's why it's celebrated by, I think, those who care about the climate, because this is something that, you know, honestly, I even thought was dead. I thought Joe Manchin had played us uh, sufficiently. Um, you know, he had said that, you know, he was working with us and fall to get it done, and then it just the clock kept ticking out and the fact that he did have a few provisions that you know we don't like and we're going to try to stop uh, in other ways that were added to get it across the finish line but you know when you have a 50-50 senate every single 
senator essentially becomes the president with veto power. Now, part of the bill depends uh, on some carbon capture technology, which has yet to be proven. Is that realistic? Do we really think that we can engineer our way out of the climate change problem, or uh, are we really going to have to look at some lifestyle changes? Yes, I'm not a climate scientist. I'm not sure your background, but the climate scientists are telling us uh, that they think this will work. That's why it's in the bill. So I guess, you know, I'm going to rely on those folks to to give us the best direction. But uh, at this point, again, it's been from every environmental organization, you know, celebration that we're we're moving this forward. So I'm I'm hopeful that, you know, the incentives we have in place will work. And I and I think they will. I mean, you know, electric vehicles, it's kind of a no brainer, right? I mean, if we can just get the cost of them down and have the charging stations to make them more usable, there's no reason whatsoever why someone would want to continue to buy gasoline, uh, right? Especially with the prices right now. Uh, and by offering pretty significant, you know, $7,500 incentives, you know, we're, we're really helping it to get that industry going. And the auto industry itself is meeting that by changing their production needs, et cetera. Well, once you've changed those, uh, that's something that's going to be pretty permanent. Let's turn to some of the healthcare aspects here. Medicare drug price negotiation. This is something that advocates have been fighting for for years. Um, in the bill, though, it, there's a, like a limited number of drugs that can be negotiated and then gradually expands over 10 years. Tell us about that. How did that provision get in there? And is that going to be enough? Yeah, so we had this in another pharmaceutical bill in the Progressive Caucus. You know, originally, they were only going to do 25 drugs a year, not in this bill but in a different bill we had, and we got it, you know, increased from that number. But part of it is there is implementation um, that we're hearing from the agency. You can't just do it with every drug across the board instantly. So that's why there's a crank up. But this is doing 100 drugs, and I think the top 250 drugs are something like a majority of, you know, where the pharmaceutical dollars go. So if we can hit that in the first several years, then we're hitting the majority of expenses that are out there. But there are just some, you know, administrative issues in in the application of it. Were you disappointed that the cap on insulin prices didn't make it through the final bill? Yeah, you know, Ron Johnson um, and Republicans, other than, I guess, seven Republicans voted with us. But because of the the crazy rules they found in the Senate, the 57 votes wasn't enough to to keep something in. But we do have it for people on Medicare. They're going to be have their, their insulin capped at $35. But for others, it's not. And, you know, I like to remind people the patent for insulin is nearly 100 years old. Uh, And it was sold for a dollar to three different people who were the inventors uh, because they wanted it to be in the public good. And Big Pharma has figured out how to game the system for 100 years by making little tweaks that have allowed them to continue to keep it on some sort of a patent, which makes it, you know, in some cases cost people hundreds and hundreds of dollars to, to to stay alive. So, it still is significant that at least for people on Medicare, we have it. But, you know, if it wasn't for Ron Johnson and other Republicans, uh, we could have had that provision for everyone, which is still a goal that we're going to be moving forward. Let's uh, talk about some of the financial aspects of this bill. Um, the minimum corporate tax. Tell us how that works. Yeah, well, you know, so many corporations have figured out great ways to game the system from hiding uh, money and profits allegedly overseas where they were made as opposed to here, even though they're U.S.-based companies, to, you know, working the system in in many different ways. But the effective rate for many U.S. corporations is like zero, one, two percent, lower single digit. And, you know, for the average family, it's more like 16 percent. So, you know, this gets them very close as a minimum tax of 15 percent. So they can still 
you know, hire lots of lawyers and accountants to say money was made overseas or that, you know, with shell companies, et cetera. But that's now going to be a waste of their money because they're still going to be paying a 15% minimum tax. And, uh, you know, that's significant because Joe Biden, when he first got elected, convinced a number of other countries to also abide by that so that we don't have low economic road, a path with all these countries competing against each other. So that is a significant way to have a greater um, equity in tax. Uh, along with the little surcharge on the tax buyback or the stock buybacks, I, I, you know, that wasn't something originally considered. And, you know, now that I know it's out there, it's a great source we should do more on because, again, the average person isn't doing this. This is often the richest uh, in corporations, again, trying to avoid uh, individual tax liability. And how much revenue do you, could be raised by the stock buyback? Do we know yet? Yes, and this is from memory. Um, I'm in my car, actually driving in town. I pulled over to do the interview. Um, okay, I believe it's 75 billion just on that one percent. Now, uh, thinking strategically, when you look back at sort of the fight over Build Back Better and sort of where we ended up, do you think it was? Uh, do you think it was the right strategy to roll so many disparate pieces of legislation into this mammoth omnibus bill, or might there have been better results by introducing it to those bills individually? We had to, and the reason um, is again Senate rules. I'll, I'll keep talking about that. Most of the rules in the Senate were developed when people wore white powdered wigs to work. And I'm not <laughs> there aren't still senators wearing wigs, uh, just a different kind. Uh, the problem is, in order to get around that 50-vote rule, because it's 60 votes in the Senate really to get anything done, there's a process called reconciliation, where things have to be fiscal in nature, and then it still has to be approved by the sentiment par- parliamentarian that it is fiscal in nature. So, for example, we couldn't put the labor provisions of the PRO Act in because they weren't fiscal in nature. They weren't like a, a part of the, the, the federal finances. But, you know, the negotiating for prescription drug prices is because of the return that it saves and brings dollars in. So uh, there, there's a threshold that we had to meet. And the only way you could meet that is by making it work through this process that you can only do a couple times a year, uh, reconciliation. And, and that's why um, you put everything kind of in a single bill because you only get a couple cracks at it a year under the, the rules. But uh, it is by the rules that we can, you know, get around this arcane 60-vote filibuster uh, rules that they have in the Senate, and, and that's why you saw it happen that way. All right. We've been speaking with Wisconsin's 2nd Congressional District Representative Mark Pocan. Thanks so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz. Of course. Thank you very much. Take care. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Sam Swartz. Thanks for joining us. It's Monday, which means that Forward Lookout host Brenda Conkle sits down with Dylan Brogan to break down all the meetings happening in Madison and Dane County this week. This week, they got ready for the CrossFitters coming to Madison, new UW projects, and challenges to property tax bills. It's Monday, and that means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. Uh, yesterday, just so everybody knows, the Board of Canvassers met at the Lion Energy Center, so they're doing their canvasser thing because uh, it looks like there's going to be uh, – because there's a recount in the in the partisan primary for the Republican uh, challenger to Mark Pocan, right? 
Uh, yes, that's District 2, and they'll be doing a recount for that. They not only did it yesterday, but they are scheduled for all day today, all day tomorrow, all right, and yeah. all day Wednesday, maybe even Thursday. Board of um, Canvassers. So they're they're a lot. just going to keep yes. going until they get it done. All right. Well, they're good for them. Um, so that's going on, and uh, I, I presume it's something you could probably just show up and watch if you want. Um, yeah, it's out at the Lion Energy Center, so and it's ex- Exhibition Hall D, so they got lots of space. And I'm sure that, yes, you can go out there and watch and find out how, how democracy in action looks. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, happening Tuesday, in addition to the Board of Canvassers possibly meeting again, we got the Criminal Justice uh, Council, its Racial Disparity Subcommittee. What are they working on? Um, they're going to get a presentation about the jail reentry initiatives from the sheriff's office. Um, they have one of their social workers, uh, Sarah Wampol-Majewski, um, who will be doing a presentation for them. And then they will also be getting another presentation um, about the JFA Institute um, response to the meeting that they had a few weeks ago where they talked about Resolution 320. Well, let's talk about the tree board. Why not? That's happening tomorrow at 4 o'clock. That's a virtual meeting. Um, trees are terrific, right? Yes. They're going to talk about tree preservation and planting policy ideas and then next steps about the ideas that they might have. They also have highway tree pruning update as well as gravel fill in planting strips update. So um, things that most people never think about but are very important to our trees. Yes, they are. All right. Well, let's talk about, um, should we talk about PP&J, Public Protection and Judiciary Committee? They're meeting at 530. It's a it's an in-person meeting, but you could attend virtually as well. Um, it's in the city county building, room 357. What are they talking about? Um, they're talking about renaming and the membership of the Criminal Justice Council that we just talked about earlier. Um, they're also going to be getting a status of staffing at the Dane County Sheriff's Office and associated mitigation efforts. I'm not sure exactly what that meant there. Mm. Um, and then they're going to talk about the results of the gift cards for guns event that they had. Yeah, it sounds like it was successful. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, um, before we wrap up the county, how about we just hear about what's happening with the Environment, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committee? It's a hybrid meeting. Um, you can attend virtually or over at um, a county building on Fen Oak Drive. So, yeah, what's going on with that committee? So, they have some uh, grant funds that they're accepting for the 2022 Clean Boats, Clean Waters grant, as well as the American Farmland Trust Soil Health stewards funds (laughs) so they got a couple grants that they're um receiving and then they're giving a couple grants um for the dane county conservation fund grant to the town of albion and then they are authorizing the purchase of land at bulk wild sugar river wildlife area as well as door creek wetlands um so they've got uh, a lot going on with money coming in and going out and let's move on to the city of Madison. Uh, we have, um, let's say, uh, wow, the, you, know, we're, you can kind of tell we're at the end of the month and it's August, Brenda. So, yeah, it's a pretty late week and there's a whole bunch of committees, like five or six of them that didn't have agendas. Hmm. So I don't know. You might got to watch and see once if they come out or if maybe those meetings are canceled. How about the room tax commission? They're meeting at the Monona Terrace at 4 p.m. on Tuesday. Yeah, so the room tax money that we have um, now goes to various uh, entities throughout the city. So City Arts, Destination Madison, Monona Terrace, Overture Center, and Alliance Center 
are generally uh, the the groups that get the room tax, which is collected from hotel fees, yes. uh, hotel taxes. So um, they'll be talking about what their allocations are going to be in the 2023 budget. Um, and then they'll be looking at some of the how the fund is doing and the projections that they have for the future. And they love those CrossFitters over at the Room Tax Commission, I'm sure, right? Oh, they absolutely do. Yes. <laughs> and the Iron Man and everybody else and hey you know it is a very boring week there's not a whole lot yes but those crossfits it is like it's it's a crazy they just like here is a really heavy sack of rocks and carry it for a mile and people go crazy people are all into it this is um a segment about local government so we'll continue with the water board at 4 30 the water utility board they're going to be discussing their capital and operating budgets and some other things right yeah, um, so they have a lot of reports that they get to the committee. They sort of have them uh, distributed throughout the year. So the so this time they're going to be getting the water production report, a financial conditions report, the capital projects report, as well as the operations report. So those are all in writing, and there are links to those if you're interested in looking at them. And Wednesday at 930 at the Mass and Municipal Building is the Board of Assessors, and they will... Um, There'll be about 70 people, 70 property owners are challenging their tax bills. And, you know, I was looking at this at City Hall and, you know, sometimes the Board of Assessors, when they're like, uh, you know, they get a challenge, sometimes it goes up, right? Not always goes yeah, it down. Does. It so does. So I thought that was a little bit interesting. Yeah. And, you know, the, the values of the property goes from like zero to about like 24 million. So or 42 million. There, there were some big properties in there. So and, and um, also some small ones, right? Yeah, and some uh, also small ones, yeah. and you know it's it's just individual property owners, and it's an you know mega corporation. So, 10 a.m. The Street Use Staff Commission is meeting virtually uh, 10 a.m. Wednesday, so uh, and that, that they approve um, various events. So what? Yeah, what are they? What's on their agenda on Wednesday? Um, so there is a PETA peaceful demonstration on September 7th through 11th, um, Ironman, Wisconsin. We were just talking about that September 7th to the 12th. Um, Iron Kids Wisconsin Fun Run will also be on September 10th. Uh, Wolf's Oktoberfest, um, and that is on September 17th and 18th. Um, and then there is an electric car show, um, which will be at the 100 block of Martin Luther King Boulevard on September 24th, as well as Talking Spirits, which is a Forest Hill Cemetery tour um, that the Veterans um, Museum mm-hmm. is doing. That sounds nice. Uh, the electric car celebration, the, the chief of police can drive his new Tesla <laughs> around, show it off. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you could do another story on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's just finish up with uh, 445 on Thursday. We have the Joint Campus Area Committee, and they ha- it looks like a very lengthy uh, agenda planned, and it's a virtual meeting. Yeah, they always have a ton of projects that they're looking at. Um, uh, they have one bigger presentation about the West Campus District Plan. Um, so... That will be the first thing that they'll talk about. And then they go through the different projects that the UW is doing, as well as UW Health, City of Madison. Sometimes the City of Shorewood Hills is also on there. So they go through each of the projects and they have an opportunity to ask questions about them. $300 million uh, new sports facility over by Camp Randall. So we'll see about that. I don't even think they play in front of an audience in that thing. But all right, I guess I'm. I guess it's good they signed that big Big Ten deal or whatever. I really should learn more about sports, Brenda. 
I was going to say, I, I got nothing, Dylan. Sorry. <laughs> but if you'd like to know more about local government, you can go to forwardlookout.com. That is a helpful resource if uh, to keeping track of what's going on in Dane County and in Madison. Brenda, always fun. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Dylan. This Thursday is the 78th anniversary of the liberation of Paris. But U.S. newsreels of the day whitened out the contribution of African and African-American military personnel in this victory. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. These are guys you might have taken basic with at Fort Benning or Davis or Devons or Dix. They were in Paris on August 25th. Paris, France, with a big underline for the word France. Because this old fellow, her, him, had been walking around the streets for four years in Paris, Germany, sleepwalking in a kind of German nightmare. Now it belonged to them again. This Thursday, August 25th, is the 78th anniversary of the liberation of Paris by the Force Française Libre, Free French Forces. Upon the surrender of the occupying German troops in 1944, but the U.S. and British military commanders did not allow black members of the Free French Forces to participate in the capture of Paris, and the U.S. also excluded its own African-American servicemen from liberation celebrations. Photographs even show French resistance hero Georges Stuxen from Gabon being removed from the victory parade at gunpoint. In fact, African colonial soldiers made up a majority of French General Charles de Gaulle's Free French Army. De Gaulle wanted to make sure his troops, and not the French resistance, led the liberation of Paris. He was anxious to assert his authority in post-Nazi France to prevent the resistance, with many communists and working-class radicals, from taking power. General Eisenhower's chief of staff, Major General Walter Battle Smith, wrote that it is more desirable that the division that liberates Paris consists of white personnel, but 65% of the Free French Army was non-white, including conscripts from black Africans, Arabs, Maghrebi Jews, and Berbers. To create a white liberation force, Allied High Command insisted that the French 2nd Armored Division's black soldiers be removed and replaced by whites from other units. When it became clear there were not enough white soldiers to fill the gaps, soldiers from North Africa and the Middle East were used instead. In fact, the first French soldiers Parisians saw late on August 24th and at dawn the next morning were most likely Spanish anarchists and Republican veterans who had fled Franco's army in 1939 at the end of their civil war. They wore U.S. military gear, drove U.S. tanks, decorated with the Gaulist Cross of Lorraine, but they proudly carried such names as Guadalajara, Abro, Teluai, sites of grand battles during their own cruel war. The unit called Nueve was representative of the quite heterogeneous forces that retook the city. In fact, on the same day de Gaulle was marching into Paris on camera, the underground French resistance was still working to win the war. A group of 32 Spanish and 8 French resistance fighters in La Madeleine, France, tackled an entire German column consisting of 1,300 men in 60 trucks. The resistance blew up the road and railroad bridges and positioned themselves in the surrounding hills with machine guns. The battle raged from 3 p.m. until noon the following day. Three resistance fighters were injured, while eight Germans were killed, nearly 200 wounded, and the rest surrendered. After this humiliating defeat, the German commander killed himself before he could be captured. All told, there were over a million African soldiers engaged in World War II. Most were conscripted by their respective colonial powers. The Brits alone drafted a half million.
Army trucks forcibly picked up men in their home villages and pressed them into service between 1939 and 1945. The French Army in 1940 had African troops comprising more than 9% of the army. But the French impressed more than 200,000 black Africans during the war. Thousands of black African prisoners of war, POWs, were murdered by the Nazis in 1940. Many were also interned in German labor camps. 25,000 of France's African troops were also killed. In 1944, after the liberation of France, de Gaulle decided it was too dangerous to use African troops, and they were decommissioned and put into temporary centers or detention camps. While at these centers, they faced discrimination, barely got the food and resources they needed, and did not have any kind of shelter. The French refused to give these troops their pay and denied them a pension and other benefits. They were eventually shipped out of France back to Dakar in Senegal. But these veterans fought back. In December 1944, black soldiers at the Theoroy detention camp protested for their back pay. In response, the white French military opened fire on the Africans with machine guns, killing 35 and wounding hundreds. Many others were sent to prison. As for the liberation of Paris, the U.S. commanders got what they wanted. The newsreels back home, everyone was brought up on whitewashed history. Also left out of the story was the courage and effectiveness of the French resistance, who were guerrilla fighters, ran underground communications, and were vital gatherers of military intelligence that aided the liberation of France. One of the resistance's extraordinary leaders was the great performer, African-American Josephine Baker, who was recently honored by induction into the Pantheon, France's Tomb of Heroes. But those are stories for another day. For the past and the past, I'm Harry Richardson. the time is 6:47 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news here on WORT. this month, WORT science contributor Patrick Seibel headed to the Longenecker Horticultural Gardens for a guided tour with curator David Stevens. In this excerpt of their hour-long conversation, Stevens talks about one of the pride and joys of one of the garden's founders, the crabapple tree. You can find their full conversation online at wortfm.org and on the Perpetual Notion Machine podcast. So it's a beautiful summer day here, and um, as we walk through this, now we've gone through the lilacs, and I see some magnolias here. It seems like this area might be more popular with people in the spring. Yes, uh, this area, which uh, contains our lilacs, as well as uh, some of our 80 magnolias, uh, is just a 
glorious uh, area to behold in the spring. If you can imagine the trees in front of us all full of flowers. Uh, so probably, you know, in the spring, uh, around Mother's Day is probably our peak of attendance. You can imagine over a thousand people uh, walking through this collection uh, on any given day during that period. Uh, added to that, we're about to go into our crab apple collection. Uh, if Lilacs were really uh, Bill Longenecker, the first curator's uh, love and joy. Uh, our crab apple collection was the second curator, Ed Hasselkus, who was a student of Bill Longenecker and became curator here in 1966. Uh, they were and still are his love. Ed just turned 90 uh, just a, a month ago and is still uh, with us and uh, as passionate about uh, plants as, as, as ever. So Ed uh, found that, that really crab apples were the most planted and still are uh, small scale flowering trees in the upper Midwest. Uh, so his uh, interest uh, really came from that. And over the years, we've amassed over 200 uh, crab apples that are currently in our collection. Why 200? Because there are so many different genetic forms. Uh, crab apples, just like our edible apples, are very uh, genetically diverse, and virtually all of them come from chance seedlings. There are a few, uh, there are a few species, but most apples and crab apples are are one of a kind, and then are, believe it or not, cloned. Uh, so cloning sounds a little scary, but that dates back to 50 BC uh, when Greek and Romans would see uh, olive trees, olive branches rubbing together. And over time, the bark would come off and the cambial tissue where the xylem and phloem we all learned about back in high school biology uh, exists and they would bond together. So folks uh, said, well, we want the, the olive that's bigger and tastier. We don't want the inferior ones. We did the same thing with apples. Uh, as well. Um, so they were able to graft them, taking just a, a chance a seedling, a rootstock, and then taking a piece of the branch of that apple or crab apple we wanted to uh, keep growing or, or uh, have more of, and you would graft those together, uh, getting that cambial tissue, that, that xylem phloem, to link. So a big question is, what's the difference between a crab apple and an apple? Well, I'm here to tell you. Oh, please do. I, I don't have a guess right off. <laughs> right. It's the size of the fruit. So if the fruit uh, on the malice is the genus of crab apple and apple is two inches or smaller in diameter, it's classified a crab apple. If the uh, fruit is larger than two inches in diameter, it's classified an apple. There are many sweet tasting crab apples, and most apples are actually quite tart. Uh, another thing we talked about, oftentimes we think of lilacs as being native to North America. Uh, the same thing holds uh, true with apples. Most people uh, think of an apple, right, as being native, nothing more than American than, than baseball and apple pie, right? Um, apples actually are native to Kazakhstan. Uh, and the DNA analysis on those today tell us that, that they were born of four different species, three species of apples, so a malice with fruit larger than two inches in diameter, and one crabapple species. Uh, and then, of course, were brought here uh, early uh, during uh, the European uh, development of, of, of the country as well. 
Uh, they can cross between each other. If you go to an apple orchard, oftentimes you'll see a crab apple at the end of the rows as a pollinator uh, for uh, the edible apples or domesticated apples uh, we see. Yeah, whether or not it was edible, I think that was going to be my next or my guess if I had to come out with one. Uh, you bet. So, of course, uh, Johnny Appleseed had not very much interest. There was actually a, a, a man uh, of the name who spread apples across the country. And if you've ever read The Botany of Desire, you know that his interest was in hard cider. It was not in apple pies. Um, but, yeah, apples, uh, the malice species, has about twice the uh, genetic uh, makeup that we do. So uh, every apple you've ever tasted or bought, unless you were lucky enough to find a chance seedling growing somewhere, uh, was, was, was just a, a, a chance a seedling that somebody found uh, and uh, continued to propagate. Uh, so they, it would be identical to that original uh, chance seedling. This weekend, feature contributor Harry Richardson watched two bad movies so you don't have to. That's according to him. The Man from Toronto, a crime buddy action movie, and Big Gold Brick, a dark comedy set in the 60s. Hola. I am the man from Toronto. Objection. No. I'm the man from Toronto. Oh, this is on you. That was clip from the trailer for The Man from Toronto, a violent action comedy movie directed by Patrick Hugh. This is a movie that from the preview was a definite maybe. But late Friday night, I went for it because Woody Harrelson. Harrelson plays, you guessed it, The Man from Toronto, a notorious torturer, merciless hitman. He's paired with comedian Kevin Hart as Teddy, a hapless everyman who fails at every business scheme he cooks up. Teddy takes his long-suffering spouse on a special birthday trip, but because of a toner issue, ends up in the wrong B&B in the middle of nowhere. In an unlikely case of mistaken identity, the bad guys think Teddy is the man from Toronto. One of the guys takes him down to the basement, where they expect him to torture someone they have kidnapped into giving up a series of numbers. Teddy barely holds it together, feeling he has no choice but to try to be Toronto. Luckily, his would-be victim is so freaked out by the threat of torture that he quickly gives up the number. One of the bad guys confirms that this is the series of numbers they need, but before Teddy can find a way out, all hell breaks loose as the FBI raids the house. The FBI convinces Teddy they agree to pay off his debts to continue to pretend he is Toronto. This leads inevitably to Teddy being grabbed by the real Toronto, who finds it useful temporarily to let Teddy continue to impersonate him, and two more unlikely but entertaining enough fights and chasings. All in all, the story is just too unconvincing and Teddy too grating to get much of our sympathy. Harrelson, however, is pretty convincing as the man from Toronto, which in and of itself was an okay fiction until the movie takes it overboard. You'll know when you get there, but I would urge you not to invest your time. In this guy-buddy action movie, the few roles for women are wasted, for the great Alan Barkin as a criminal mastermind, and a fine Kelly Cuoco is stuck in a stereotypical role as the man-hungry best girlfriend of Teddy's spouse, an underutilized Jasmine Matthews. I mostly blame writers Robbie Fox and Chris Brenner, but I save some blame for director Hughes, who is responsible, after all, for several other mediocre films, like The Hitman's Bodyguard and The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. 
Now for a truly weird film. It's a miracle the kid's alive. We may experience mood swings, agitation, confusion. Can you smoke in here? I'm afraid you can't. Name's Floyd. Dr. I told me that you were a writer. Would you consider writing my biography? And that was a clip from the trailer for Big Gold Brick, a dark comedy fantasy by Brian Petzos. This is another movie that could have gone either way, judging by the trailer, and if you believe the audience reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Sadly, the offbeat story, while certainly imaginative, ultimately doesn't lead anywhere, certainly not to a satisfying ending. Part of the problem may be that after 20 minutes, the film becomes a series of flashbacks. To start at the beginning, Samuel, played by Emery Cohen, is a miserable young man behind on his rent who decides to end it all. He takes a bus trip to a random destination, drops his suitcase, and stands in the middle of the road. Enter wealthy, inattentive driver, Floyd, who hits him, but Sam miraculously survives, but faces a fragile grip on reality on his way to what the doctors expect to be a full recovery. Oddly, the doctor never talks to Sam, but to the guilty driver, Floyd. The mysterious Floyd has what turns out to be an exaggerated view of his life, but ironically seems to be right about its literary potential. In any case, Floyd lives in a mansion with his younger, flirtatious lawyer spouse and his two kids, Eddie Leonidas Castronis, a junior high sociopath, and his attractive, sweet, 20-something daughter, Lily, Lucy Hale. Floyd invites Sam to be his live-in biographer for $500 a week. Floyd apparently spins a convincing tale of past adventures to Sam, who records his rambling revelations on a cassette recorder. Did I mention the film seems to be set in the 60s? No cell phones, old-style typewriters. The film is lush in its setting, especially Floyd's mansion and surrounding countryside. The acting is pretty good, especially Garcia. There are some interesting twists and turns, but they ultimately don't add up to much. Also, it's a little hard to tell what is real and what is just part of Sam's illusions. I just can't recommend the movie. Both films recently started streaming The Man from Toronto on Netflix and Big Old Brick on Hulu. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, and to Dylan Brogan, Nicholas Leet, and Bill Kingsbury for technical production. Special thanks also to science contributor Patrick Seibel, Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Stay up to date with the the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you may get your podcast. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a good night.